Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Really glad that you are here again this morning, and a huge hello to our ever-growing online audience. Wherever you might be, we welcome you today. Well, today is the third last sermon in our series called Back to Basics. We've been walking through this amazing gift to the church and truly the world, the book of Romans. Last week we walked through Romans 14 and many of us were challenged and affirmed. And today we're going to walk through the first half of Romans 15. So again, please open up your Bibles or navigate there to Romans 15 and we're going to begin our story today. Paul is not done dealing with the issue of unity among us as Christians, both within a local church and also between local churches. But let's start where we must this morning. Unity is not about uniformity. Let me say that again. Unity is not about uniformity. As one said, churches would be a lot less likely to split or experience internal strife if everyone would simply think alike and behave alike and worship alike and dress alike and even have the same likes. But that is not what God has designed the church to look like at all. Though uniformity most likely is absolutely a way to create unity, that is not what God has called us to be. He has brought us together and bound us together, interestingly, through another person, through Jesus. Yet we all know, if we're honest, how easy it is for us to mess up in the area of unity, which not only brings pain to ourselves or our family or our church, but it also affects others for eternity. As I quoted last week, disunity and infighting is a most horrible sin because the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is bound up, better or worse, for the degree of unity we display to the world. This week as I was preparing to speak and praying and thinking, I found another shining example of our sinfulness in this story below. Two congregations, true story, were located only a few blocks from each other in a very small community. They thought it might be better if they would merge and become one united, larger, more effective church rather than being two small, struggling congregations. Good idea, they thought, and they got together and they tried, but they were not able to pull it off. Remember, this is a true story. What was the problem? Believe it or not, they could not agree on how they would recite the Lord's Prayer. One group demanded, they say, trespasses, and the other group demanded, forgive us our debts. Of course, as always, the local newspaper found out about the fight, and this is what was reported truly in the local newspaper. One church went back to its trespasses, and the other one went back to its debts. That's the truth. They decided because of arrogance and pride over linguistics not to come together And do the Jesus thing right. Now we learned last week for the Christians in Rome, it had to do with another issue. Two actually. Meat sacrificed to pagan deities. The local people would kill animals. They'd give a small portion to an idol. And the rest would be sold in the market. Could a Christian buy that? Could a Christian eat that? Should they even touch that meat? Christian Jews at the time didn't want to touch it. Because it was not slaughtered according to Old Testament Jewish law. And then there was the issue of holy days. Were all non-Jewish Christians? Did they have to participate in all the Jewish religious holidays of the day? Well, what did Paul say? 
Well, here's one of the things he said last week in Romans 4, 6. He who regards one day as special does it to the Lord. He who eats meat eats it to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does it to the Lord and gives thanks to God. As one simply said, Paul's indisputable point in 14 is this. People with opposing viewpoints on non-essentials can be both perfectly in the right will of God. In the historic context, if Christians from a Jewish background wanted to keep the Sabbath and abstain from meat and wine given to idols, no problem, do it. But if other Christians neglected the Sabbath and wanted to eat eat meat and drink wine given to idols, that's just fine too. Both positions are acceptable Christian positions, and believers who hold each position should not and cannot, never would, condemn each other. Now, their issues are not necessarily our issues today. Sunday or Saturday may not be a battle for us or food given to idols, but we did talk about last week movies, cosmetics, alcohol, tobacco, card playing, dancing, fashion, Bible translation, what type of music you should play in church, material wealth, and even secondary theology. Now we walk through all of that together, and and there was one phrase I used at the end of last week's message I want to say again. It's a a thing that's been said by Christians attempting to build unity throughout the centuries. In the essentials, they wrote unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In the essentials, unity. We will never compromise on the very essence of our faith, the virgin birth, the trinity, Jesus being God in flesh, him substituting himself for us, heaven, hell, eternal judgment, all those things that have always been held. There is no compromise on Jesus being the only way to heaven. But on non-essentials, where we passionately disagree with each other, women in ministry, uh, different views on spiritual gifts, church, government, should you dance, should you not. These things, though significant and so should be thought through and defined for each local church, there must be liberty between each other. And in all things, there's the key word, charity. If Christians could just be nice with each other, the unity factor would go through the roof. Don't you agree? We need to be charitable to one another, even when we passionately disagree with each other. Now again, let me remind you, there is nothing new under the sun. There is no golden age to look back to when the church did it right. The church in Galatia, just read your Bible, was legalistic. The church in Corinth was involved in all sorts of sexual stuff, including incest, in their church. The church in Pergamum, well, they were divided because Christians, knowing better, continually married non-Christians, though they knew Jesus said not to. The church in Ephesus lost its first love. The church in Laodicea just made Jesus sick. And then there was all this stuff in Rome. And we're the same. Here's what Paul says to us this morning in Romans 15.1. The same theme. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. The weak are not weak in faith. They're not yet mature enough to grasp all things. These people understood the gospel, the basics of the faith, church practice, even church discipline and church disciplines. But this this group, this group was unable to move beyond some of their history. This isn't a derogatory term. But people will become weak in their faith when deep woundedness or history controls their now. As I shared last week as a pastor, I see this all the time. Those with dark backgrounds tend to be much more legalistic and black and white because they need boundaries to prevent them going back to what they've been saved from. The problem happens, though, that when they begin to say, all other Christians need the boundaries I need, 
that's when you know someone has become weak in the faith. The strong, on the other hand, comes from the word powerful, the able ones, the ones that have risen above the drag of lists. One put it this way. They understand that they do not need to be involved in people-pleasing, performance-based righteousness. The strong, deep down inside themselves, know that they're righteous because of the Father's calling and grace, because of the Son's eternal life and gift, and because of the Spirit's indwelling presence. They rest confidently in their internal security, knowing they have nothing to prove to God and everything to give. So Paul comes to a community just like us and says this this morning. If you are strong, you ought to. You owe. You have a strong obligation to bear the weakness of the weak. Now, this does not mean put up with those people. That's not what Paul is saying. It means to carry, to take oneself onto another, to carry or share a load. It comes from the image of carrying a very heavy pitcher of water. Paul says we who are stronger must not only put up with the weak, no, no, we bear their weakness. Now, does this mean in every single case those who are weak need to control the whole church or control the theology of the church or actually control the personal lives of all the strong? No, that is not what Paul is saying. Again, as Chuck Swindoll so brilliantly wrote, so does this mean that a mature believer must continually exist in the prison constructed by the feeble sensibilities of weak Christians? No, this does not need to happen. Protect your privacy. Choose your environment. No one says you have to surround yourself with weak people all the time. But in Christian community, when you are in their company, voluntarily set aside your liberty for that time. It is a mistake, he writes, to think that you can loosen up the weak among us by flaunting your freedom. It's very difficult for someone to learn what God's trying to teach them in liberty when they're angry. Paul says, we who are stronger need to not just put up, but walk with those who are weak. And then he makes a broad statement in verse 2, and it's a difficult one, easily preached, easily said, very difficult for all of us. Ready? Each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. Paul is not saying we're never called to please ourselves ever. But he's saying we need to build each other up out of love, which is not done with an attitude of resignation or an attitude of pride. It's humble love. It's sympathy. It's patience. It's kindness. And notice this, everyone. It's not a moral idea. It's not a nice suggestion. It's a command. And Paul roots this coming command not in himself, not in other Christians, not in church history. He roots it in one person, Jesus. One preached it this way for Paul. Christ's example carried immense power. Christ's earthly action sometimes aren't really real to us, but what Christ did actually really is true. This is what Jesus was like, and this is what Jesus is like right now. He really did not please himself. He really did please his neighbor for their good to build them up, and we are called to follow his example. Everyone ready? This is important. But what's even more remarkable is not only is Jesus the pattern we're all supposed to follow, which we all hear all the time, but Jesus also is the power. We can do this command by Jesus' power. But if we say by our actions or by our words, I cannot obey this, we are really saying I will not obey this. The question before us today is if God is calling us to change something in our lives for the sake of Christian unity, we can do it 
through Jesus. Most people get stuck on the pattern and forget the power, and then they end up failing. Paul brings actually all of chapter 14 and 15 home in this next verse, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Don't forget who Jesus really is. Sometimes we, even as evangelicals, forget. Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus was in indescribable glory. He was in the ever-blessed fellowship of the Godhead in perfect holiness and in perfect community. He was not touched by sin. He did not walk in any darkness. He was worshipped by billions of angels. And yet, despite all of that, he chose. He chose to come for us when we could not get to him. He came and he lived among us. He pitched his tent with us. He died for us. He gave it all up for us. And by the way, he still does. Never forget that the resurrected Jesus still bears the scars of the cross forever. Forever. And then Paul says, see, Jesus is our example. He wrote it this way in Philippians 2. The message writes it this way. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privilege. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life. And then he died a selfless, obedient death. By the way, the worst kind of death at that time, crucifixion. And because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above anyone or anything even or ever so that all created things in heaven and earth, even those things long dead and buried, will bow down and worship this Jesus Christ. Paul says, Christ did this for us. And when we really begin to move it from the ethereal theological world to practical reality, we understand the calling on us must happen. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 3. He has this little quotation, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. It comes from Psalm 69. The psalm was used again and again to show the suffering of Jesus was not only predicted, but it came true in all of its gory detail. But there's more going on here. Paul references this because the weak Christians in Rome were actually insulting, spitting on, and damning the stronger Christians in the same church. And Paul's coming to the stronger Christians and says to them very carefully, do not forget that Jesus was false accused all the time. And you will be also, even by those who love Jesus with you. Verse 4, for everything that is written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. I read this verse this week and sort of moved on, but came back to it and realized I'd missed something significant. Paul is commanding us as a church to know all of Scripture. We must know the Old and New Testament. We need a comprehensive understanding of the Bible. Here is a strong call for us to see the enduring value of the Old Testament for our Christian walk, thinking, and life. Many of us, if we're honest, are really, really ignorant of anything before Matthew. But the more you know the amazing stories and teachings found in the Old Testament, soon you will discover something every Christian is desperate for, endurance and encouragement. Does anyone here this morning need the power to keep going in their Christian walk? Does anyone need encouragement for their walk? 
then read, read, read your Old Testament. Why? Because in the Old Testament, you see who God is in the beginning. You see God's faithfulness to his people. You see actually what he says is going to happen does happen. And you see that God is faithful when we as a community are never faithful. Amen? It's a good thing. Never ever say, I'm a New Testament Christian. It's an oxymoron. You're a Christian who follows the God of Israel and the church. Well, suddenly... As you're reading this, Paul sort of puts on the brakes and stops, and he gives a benediction to his reading. He breaks out in a prayer for us, a benediction's a blessing, asking for God's divine help. He summons the power of God to unite believers in this cause. Why? Because he knows how difficult this is. Now, notice below, he does not pray that we're all supposed to have one mind. He prays this, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. I'm so glad that Paul starts this prayer with that little phrase, may the God, or may God. The very things that God demands of us as a church, he has to give us. In verse 4, he calls us back to his word. In verse 5, he calls us back to the power of prayer. The idea here is not that we all look the same, we all act the same, or see eye to eye, but rather we love each other as we are filled with and look upon Jesus together. One great illustration of this in verse 5 was written this way. Someone said, can you imagine how boring Beethoven's Ninth Symphony would be if it was just performed by a hundred violins? Don't misunderstand, he writes, I love the violin, but that's not the sound the composer imagined when he put quill to parchment nearly 200 years ago. He called for a variety of instruments, each producing a unique sound to its own design. He called for string and woodwind and brass, percussion, even the human voice to perform this coming masterpiece. He carefully crafted a specific part of each instrument, and they start and they stop at different times. They play different notes in different patterns, but nevertheless, they play in one accord. The church, he writes, is an orchestra. We are instruments crafted by the artist, capital A. We play a score written by the grand composer, which allows all of our individual notes to come together to create beautiful harmonics. Paul continues this grand prayer for unity in verse 6 like this. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I haven't caught this a lot before, but I sure did this week. Our unity is connected to our worship. And when we are unified, it allows us to effectively praise God. But never forget, unity produces worship, and worship only goes one direction. As another Bible teacher wrote, the consummate purpose of the Christian unity is not to please other believers, though that's essential and good. Worship is always about one person, the Lord. Inwardly, outwardly, individually, corporately. Paul says that when we are unified with others, our worship becomes not only sweeter, it actually becomes stronger. Have you ever considered that when you come to church and you have a difficulty singing or worshiping in word or thought or deed, it may not just be what's going on up here, but it may be that you have disunity in your heart? Unity and worship cannot be separated Well, Paul now brings this command to a head. His call for all of us to deny ourselves and accept one another is now given. All of us, the strong, he says, the weak, everyone in between, all of this is connected to, defended by, defined by, and commanded out of Jesus' example. Here's a grand verse. 
Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. We don't usually do this, but we're going to do it right now. I want everyone to say this. If you're online and the go train, say it quietly, but say it. Ready? Accept one another. No, no, go back. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept. Take one's self upon you. Welcome one another. Actually, it really transliterates Christians, take other Christians into your heart and also into your home. Why? Simple. Jesus did this for you. Jesus welcomed you. Jesus accepted you joyously despite our sin, despite all of who we are. He impartially welcomed us. Jesus accepted us even for the glory of God. Remember, the goal of history is that all people groups will come together in the presence of God and worship him together as one voice. One said, think about the amazing diversity of Jews and non-Jews whom Christ has accepted. Christ's astounding example gives mighty force to Paul's challenge to us today. How did Christ accept you? How did he accept me? He accepted us with our many sins our prejudices, our innumerable blind spots. He accepted us with all our psychological shortcomings, our cultural naivety. He accepted us with all our provincialisms. He accepted us even in our, here's the key word for everyone, stubbornness. And then the person writes, and that's how we're supposed to accept each other. No one knows what the last 24 hours will look like, right? No one knows when life ends, most of us. But here's the point. Whether we have 24 hours or 24 years or 100 years, Jesus has showed us something very important. In his final hours, just before he was murdered, what does he pray for? The unity of the church. Christ made us one by his willingness not to please himself. Are there some legitimate, good things, or even rightful things that God is asking you to forego for the good of other brothers and sisters? Then all, by all means, forego them. Are there some believers who you have been unwilling to accept, hang out with, or be with because they're just not your type of Christian? Too bad. God says we need to accept them and love them. Let us covenant, he writes, to do this now. Paul says, look, everyone, just look around. Look at who Jesus has accepted. He'd say, by the way, I was a hardcore religious prof who also was a murderer, and he accepted me, so I better accept you. And then he says, you know, by the way, Jesus is profound because he was sent both to Jews and non-Jews. See, God's about the world. For I tell you, verse 8, that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. The king of the Jews has become the servant of the Jews, and he did this because he wanted to back up his own promises. God is faithful. All that was promised from Genesis to Malachi has found its fulfillment in the birth Life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's not just about us, by the way. It's for all people. He says, look, look, look around the world. It's happening too. And then he quotes all these verses. Second Samuel, Psalms, Deuteronomy, Isaiah. And don't miss this this morning. It's important. Paul intentionally quotes from every formal part of the Old Testament. The law the prophets, and the writings. Every part of the Old Testament, he's arguing, cries out for God so loved what? The world. God has extended his grace to everyone. Here's what he wrote in verse 9. And more, however, 
that the non-Jews might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with the people. Again, praise the Lord, all you non-Jews. Let all people extol him. Again, Isaiah wrote, the root of Jesse will spring up, the one who has risen to rule over the nations. And him, the non-Jews, will hope. If you're not a Jew at all this morning, ethnically, or you don't have a Jewish background, I'm one of those, have you ever just stopped and let these verses sink in? Please, hear this. Have you ever just stopped and went, he didn't have to come for me? I mean, I think we all need to stop taking for granted that God needed to come for all of us. God didn't need to come for anyone. But in his mercy and sovereignty, he chose to do it. So he chose the Jewish nation. And by the way, he could have just stopped there. But he didn't stop there. And then he came for all people. When was the last time in your devotional life or during worship or during communion, you've just stopped, if you are a Gentile, a non-Jew, and said, oh my goodness, thank you. Again, I've shared this before. The most pivotal time when this came home to me was when I was in Israel at the Wailing Wall. And I was with a Russian Jew who had become a follower of Jesus, a Messianic Jew. And he looked at me shaking his head. And I said, what did I do? What did I do? And he looked at me and he just said, I don't understand how you non-Jews worship our God so much. I said, excuse me, he's my God too. You know, what? You know, uh, no, but he, he looked at me and he said, no, no, but you understand, right? And it struck me. The mercy of God in a way I'd never thought about before. Well, Paul actually ends this section with another prayer. Paul prays twice in 13 verses because he knows that Christian unity is not going to happen without this. He says these words, and he prays them. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May God, notice, may God give you peace and joy. Notice, God does the filling, not us. Your responsibility, my responsibility is one thing, believe. What does it really mean to believe or have faith? It just means simply trust in the person of Jesus. And again, all this happens in the Holy Spirit. Joy, peace, unity, hope. It's not grounded in us. It's not grounded in our spiritual disciplines. It's not grounded in our faithfulness. It's grounded in the Holy Spirit. As I've preached through this whole series, without the Holy Spirit, Crothers Creek, nothing is going to happen. Our unity is a supernatural thing. Well, that's where we'll stop today. And let me tell you why. I learned this week that Paul stops his formal teaching in Romans right here, halfway through 15. The second half of 15 and 16 is some very different things. Most pastors skip over them. We are not going to do that, by the way, because there's lots of good things we can learn in them. But the formal teaching in Romans stops right here. As I came to the end of this, I was, again, wrestling with myself, thinking about how I don't accept and like everyone myself. And I began asking the question, well, so what? And then it struck me, and and please, please hear this, because it's so important for our local church. The command, accept one another as Christ has accepted you, has no power unless we re-remember what Christ has really done for us. See, the reason why it's important sometimes to preach through whole books is because you actually know what the verses mean in context. And you know what's powerful here? 
if we forget even for a moment what's been done for all of us if you're a Christian here, then this verse will be impossible because we will not have the power nor the understanding to love others the way we've been loved. So here's how I'm going to end today. Everyone ready? I'm going to go through the whole book of Romans in three minutes. Not reading the whole thing, but we're going to go through it because we will never as a church follow through on this command without this. So everyone ready? Are you ready? Okay, please. It's like, all right. Thank you online people saying yes. These people, I don't know. Here we go. Romans 1. This is where we began so long ago. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's got the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the non-Jew. Here's the good news. The gospel has come. The power of God has been given. Salvation's available. Romans 3.9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and non-Jews are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who's really seeking God. We are all in big trouble. Romans 3.21. But a righteousness from God apart from the law has been now made known to which the law and prophets testified. The whole Old Testament set us up for someone to come to do something that we thought we could do and we can't. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're in serious trouble. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Remember this. God demonstrated his love. He didn't just feel something. He did something about it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, and we all have experienced it. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, 9. You, however, Christians, you are not controlled by the sinful nature, but now by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Good news, Christian. You don't have to give in to sin anymore. There is a greater power in you. Romans 8.30. And those God predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. You didn't get God. God came for you. He called you. He justified you and put you in a right relationship. And now he has glorified you. Why? Because heaven is already in your heart. Romans 8.37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced death, life, angel, demon, present, future, nor any power, nor height or depth or anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 9.16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The death of religion has finally happened. We are no longer to pr- responsible to prove ourselves to a perfect God. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and you are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and you are saved. And then Paul says, and so because of all that, brothers and sisters, In view of God's many mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of what? Worship. When you hear all of that, then Jesus shows up to all of us and says, accept one another then, just as Christ Jesus has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. You can clap now, by the way. That's a good thing. 
So catch this. If you divorce this command of Christian unity from our personal encounter with Jesus and our corporate encounter with Jesus, it has no power. But when you reimmerse yourselves and you truly hear this, have your identity grounded in this, you will be much more willing to accept others. As I've already quoted, never forget what is more remarkable is Jesus is not just the pattern, he is the power. So here's the question for our community this morning. What things, please, no, 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 right back here. What things is God asking you individually or your family to give up? What provincialisms? What, what, what secondary issue? What perspective that may be cultural or historical, but not about us? What people do you need to start accepting? It doesn't mean you have to hang out with them 24-7, but what people are you, are you being commanded to hang out with in the sense of accept? What people do you need to go back to and repair your relationship with them? What people have you judged without even knowing them? God comes to us and says, our unity comes and stems from God's grace to us. If God's grace has not genuinely changed your heart, you will never love the unity of the church. If God's grace has changed your heart, you will die for the unity of the church. The level of your understanding and acceptance of grace determines how much you genuinely fight for unity. And by the way, you know how much you fight for it or how much you destroy it. God comes to us and says, Christ has done everything. Do this for others. And here's where I end. As Alan and the team come up, I realized there's a reason why Paul prayed twice, and I shared it. This sounds great. This sounds fantastic. We can all go to Switzerland and go, mmm. But within two days, we're still stuck with us. So Paul understood something. He understood that unity, just like salvation, is an otherworldly experience that breaks into us and changes us. And notice, these two prayers are benedictions he prays. He prays intently for a church, radically consuming itself 2,000 years ago. And so, here's what I'd like to end with. I would like all of us sincerely to pray for the unity of our church. And by the way, these would be verses to pray every week for C4. So here's what I'd like to do. Please, um, get in the posture you best feel when you pray. So you may want to stand. You may want to cover your face. You may want to open your hands. You may want to go prostrate. All of this is biblical. No, really, like how you deal with Jesus in your devotional time is how we're going to do it now. Stand, sit, doesn't matter. Kneel. You can get in the aisles if you need to. If Again, for you online, wherever you are, do whatever you need to do. And we're going to pray this. And again, not just for a moment, genuinely because you know as joanna said as she was up here about her new position we have to be a family to each other and as many of you said rightly if we're going to reach ten thousand, we need to first of all have the first thousand treat each other right so here's the prayer right out of scripture join me please god in heaven through jesus and through the spirit we pray this now May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give Crothers Creek the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify God our Father 
and our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for endurance for this church and encouragement and the mind of Jesus that cannot be invented, preached, or prodded, but actually needs to be given. We pray that this church would glorify God with one voice and one voice alone. This second prayer, may the God of hope fill you now with joy that you do not have and peace you desire as you trust in him. Lord, help us trust you so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we just want to say this as a community. God, send your Holy Spirit in this church. Without you, Holy Spirit, we will not have joy, peace, trust, or unity. We are asking again, show up every time we're about to sin and tell us no. Convict us with godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, and give us encouragement. We ask this now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who accepted us when he didn't need to but chose to. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.